Alright, if I'm going to host a podcast about film analysis, at some point or another, I am going to have to talk about auteur theory. In short, auteur theory is the idea that the principal author of a film is the director. And it prizes a film director who applies a highly centralized and subjective control to many, if not all, elements of a collaborative creative work, like a movie. This is derived from the film criticism of uh, André Bazin and Alexandre Estru. It was intended to elevate the French New Wave filmmakers from uh, the Hollywood establishment, who were more factory-like. However, it also went back into the past and gave heavy praise to Charlie Chaplin and Orson Welles. However, the main beneficiary of this reinterpretation was Alfred Hitchcock, who beforehand was seen as a populist hack before auteur theory proclaimed him a genius. Well, it's kind of like how Shakespeare was considered, you know, lowbrow back in the day, but now he is high art. Yeah, yeah, that, that has happened more than a few times. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe also because of the French. So Alfred Hitchcock is one of those. And I decided to use Rope as my showcase for auteur theory because it is arguably the most meticulously crafted film in uh, Hitchcock's entire oeuvre. So with that in mind, we'll be picking this film apart. Uh, there's a lot to it, despite how short it is. Oh yeah, there is a lot in this movie. And my name is Ryan. This is A Real Deep Dive. And I'm Rachel, perpetual co-host, because we are still recording these during the COVID-19 crisis of 2020. <laughs> And I was spitballing you over um, what film we're going to talk about. We seem to record one of these episodes every Sunday, and it was your turn. You're like, "Hey, let's do Rope." Yeah, I I, I liked Rope. We we got to like last October for the first time, or maybe some maybe in October ago. I don't know. Octobers all tend to blend together here in Salem, but I really enjoyed it because it was definitely very suspenseful. You know, Alfred Hitchcock has to paraphrase him says that suspense is the audience knowing that there is a bomb under the table, but the characters do not. Yeah, that is a sticking point I'd be uh, bringing up in the thematic undercurrents of the film later on. I think one of the reasons that this film resonated with you is uh, because you are a big fan of the true crime subgenre, and this one is based on a true crime. Yeah, it is. Uh, Rope is kind of a, well, I don't know, I would say a fancier fictionalized version of Leopold and Loeb murder case, where these two, you know, um, very highly educated young men, Leopold and Loeb, they were like 18, 19 years old, killed a 14-year-old neighbor just for, I don't know, to, kind of for the fun of it almost, just to see if they could get away with it, but they ended up getting caught because of an eyeglass hinge. Leopold had glasses with a unique hinge on them, and they were found at the murder scene, so only three people in Chicago had eyeglasses with these hinges, so sort of like how BTK getting caught with a, you know, a floppy disk, these guys got caught because of glasses. I mean, granted, in 1924, Chicago wasn't as highly populated as it is now, but still, only only like three people had that eyeglass. That is that is interesting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there are some differences in the film, and that will be uh, evidenced in the plot. Break it down. Our two main characters are Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan, and the opening of the film sees them strangle their Harvard classmate, David. Uh, in their Ma Manhattan penthouse apartment that they share. The crime is an intellectual exercise in committing the perfect murder. They then hide the body in an antique wooden chest. To add uh, insult to injury, Brandon and Philip are hosting a dinner party in the apartment, 
and the guests, none of whom were worthy of the killing, are all David's loved ones. They include his father, Mr. Kentley, and his aunt, Mrs. Atwater. Uh, the victim's mother is unable to attend due to a cold. This will be relevant later. Also present is the victim's fiance, uh, Janet, and her ex-boyfriend, Kenneth, who was a former friend of David. Brandon uses the chest containing the body as a buffet table because he's just so extra. Uh, housekeeper Mrs. Wilson arrives uh, a little later on to help with the party. Also arriving late is publisher Rupert uh, Cadell, who is Brandon and Phillips prep school headmaster. The murder was actually inspired by uh, Rupert's thought experiments that he conducted in class regarding uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's Ubermensch and uh, De Kinsey's uh, On Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts, which is a satirical essay that apparently went over the heads of both Rupert and as well as the team of Brandon and Philip. Brandon and Phil greatly admire Rupert, and they invited him to the dinner party because they thought that he would approve of their experiment. Brandon's the one that's played by John Dahl, right? Uh, yes, he is. Yeah, he's the one that's just so giddy with delight that, you know, Caldwell has shown up. And he's very interestingly cast as Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, only that, <laughs> but I think, I think Jimmy Stewart bears at least a slight physical resemblance to Jordan Peterson, which gives a relevant <laughs> undercurrent to this. Yeah, I mean, and we can probably talk more about this later when it comes to, like, the setting. But I think that if Brandon and Philip had been around together, they would have been mass shooters. Yeah, and uh, they still want Daddy's approval. Anyway. <laughs> Brandon keeps making provocative statements about David's absence. He's just sort of poking the bear. And this leads to a discussion about murder in which Rupert reiterates his theories, mostly for, you know, the people in the audience sitting in back. Everybody got that? Philip is visibly upset by this, and he begins drinking too much, which will be relevant later. Yeah, he just starts looking like he's got a sweat the whole time. <laughs> the, the highlight of this is when Mrs. Atwater who is convinced that she's something of a fortune teller, does a palm reading for Philip and says that his hands will bring him fame, which she's meant to, like, you know, compliment him about his piano playing abilities, but he interprets that as a sign of his uh, strangulation prowess. <laughs> Rupert, who catches on to something, begins interrogating a very fidgety Philip about David's disappearance and uh, about some in inconsistencies regarding their conversation. Highlighted by uh, Philip's insistence that he never strangled chickens, and he, he totally has. He strangled shit out of a whole bunch of chickens. Yeah, and we're meaning, like, literal chickens, not as in choke the chicken. Yeah, the, uh, this isn't a masturbation joke, although that is not an alien concept in a Hitchcock film. More, <laughs> more on that later. Yeah, more on that later, indeed. David's father and uh, his fiance start getting nervous about David, which which comes to a head when uh, Mrs. Kentley, uh, David's mother, calls, worried sick about David. At this point, Mr. Kentley decides to leave, and he takes some books that Brandon has lent with him and has decided to tie together with the murder weapon. Once again, he's just being so extra. When, when it's Rupert's turn to leave, uh, Mrs. Wilson unwittingly gives him David's hat instead of his own. It's always the little mistakes that really lead to the undoing. That's our eyeglass case. Rupert returns under the pretext of retrieving a cigarette case, but then he begins grilling Brandon about David. At this point, a drunk Philip angrily confronts Rupert with Brandon's gun, but Rupert seizes the gun and demands to see the contents of the chest. You know, he sees the body and realizes that he unwittingly inspired these two young men to conduct a murder just for the lulls. Rupert fires several shots out the window to attract the authorities. Consigned to his fate, Philip sits down to play the piano, and Brandon has another drink. And that's that's the film in the nutshell. You did a really good job of boiling it down, but if you've never seen Rope, it's that 
it is so tense because of the way the set is built, the chest usually stays in the middle of all of the shots. So you just know that all of these people are, are joking around and there is a dead guy, a murder victim, in the chest. Yeah, this is a very co carefully choreographed film, and if you know anything about Rope before you listen to this episode, you know why, but we'll, we will be uh, deconstructing that after we start talking about the performances. Oh, yeah. Most of the uh, actors in the cast aren't super well-known to modern audiences, but, I mean, Jimmy Stewart is still a name. Yeah, he is. <laughs> a few years ago, I started watching Hitchcock movies with my uh, baby sister, Sarah, who is an occasional guest on this program. And before we started Rear Window, I asked her if she had seen any Jimmy Stewart performance besides It's a Wonderful Life. And she's... Oh, well, just wait a second there, Mr. Potter. Yeah, and she, she said no, and I was like, oh, this is going to be very weird for you, and it is. Yeah, and then he also plays basically a giant jerk in uh, Vertigo. Yeah, but this one is particularly jarring because he's rationalizing murder. He's, he's using Nietzschean rationalization techniques that were adopted by the Nazis in the not very distant past of this film's 1948 setting. Yeah, like Nuremberg's happening right now. And he's just like, oh, Mr. Potter's driven him off the deep end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Jimmy Stewart, so he gives a good performance no matter what, but I can't help but feel that he's really miscast here. Stewart has said that uh, he doesn't like this film for a, in a number of ways, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be discussing that when we start getting into the craft. Yeah. Then there's John Dahl as Brandon Shaw. Oh, he, I mean, both uh, Dahl and Fairley Granger are amazing in this movie. I mean, it basically hinges on them. I, I don't even want to talk about anyone else in the cast besides those three. Yeah, everyone else is mostly forgettable. I mean, the murder victim is essentially already dead by the time you see him at the beginning of the film. Yeah, you know, the fiancé, the housekeeper, the father, the stock roles, they, 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 they fill the stock roles fairly well, but it, it's about these three people. Brandon is, you know, so over the top, and he's always pushing buttons, he's a live-action internet troll, and Philip Morgan's a bit of a simp for him. Yeah, I mean, are we are we going to talk about it now, all of the, the queer undertones in this? If we're talking about Rope, uh, the first thing we're talking about is how the film was made, and then the second thing that people talk about, if there is a second thing, is the queer subtext. Oh yeah, it's not, it's barely subtext. I mean, uh, you know, John Dahl was probably gay, and Fairly Ranger was, like, a bisexual icon before it was popular. The background of the film, like like we discussed earlier, uh, it was loosely derived from the Leopold and uh, Loeb murders of 1924. However, it is directly based on a 1929 stage play written by Patrick Hamilton. Unlike most Hitchcock adaptations, there wasn't too much screwing around with the source material. Uh, the, I, I've skimmed some of the, um, the the lines of dialogue in the play and watched some YouTube performances. Yeah, it's basically this movie. They shift the time period to the then modern day of 1948. Uh, they move it from London to New York City. Some of the names are changed around, but other than that, yeah, it's basically rope. I'm not beating around the bush anymore, let's talk about the production. This takes place in a single setting, like Hitchcock's previous film, Lifeboat, which is one of those situations where limiting yourself as an artist is a way to breed creativity. Some really great films have been confined to a single room. Rope is one of the foremost examples. I think 12 Angry Men is one of the other ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if there is only one thing you know about Rope, it is that it is ten shots, all of them roughly ten minutes long, edited together to seem like one never-ending continuous take. 
Yeah, and it looks really good. I mean, unless you know what you're looking for, you're not going to realize when the transitions happen. Anytime the camera zooms in onto, you know, a dark suit, usually Brandon's, that's when the changes happen. Yeah, and this was a giant pain in the ass for cast and crew. Uh, the walls of the set were on rollers so they could be moved out of the way for the camera and then replaced whenever they uh, needed to be, uh, come back into the shot. And this is uh, Hitchcock's first Technicolor film, so it's this giant hawking Technicolor camera. And the crew members had to, like, grab pieces of furniture and move them out of the way and then put them back into place so the shot still made sense and continuity was still in place. And the actors had to keep to a very carefully choreographed set of cues, which drove Jimmy Stewart nuts. He said that the the really important thing being rehearsed was the camera, not the actors, which, <laughs> yeah, sounds, sounds basically like the case. Uh, another aspect of the production is that there's this big, beautiful cyclorama matte painting of the New York skyline, and it was the largest backing ever used on a soundstage. And there were clouds in it that were made out of spun glass, and they shift positions eight times in order to go along with the feel of the film because it, it allegedly takes place in real time. It is 80 minutes long and it is supposed to take place in a period that lasts 80 minutes. I think that how it's filmed, or at least the intention, you know, whether or not you think that it worked, I think that it makes the movie much more tense because there is no break for like the audience to, you know, avoid the fact that they just committed a murder and all these characters don't know where David is. They don't know that he's literally, you know, in the box. Yeah, and Rope has a has a fly on the wall documentary feel because there's just it never cuts away. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people have argued that this is meant to serve as a metaphor for the film's themes of playing God and uh, proving one's superiority. That's that's something that uh, Rupert Jimmy Stewart's characters keep, keep saying over and over again that you know you prove one's superiority by planning this perfect murder and then totally getting away with it. Yeah, but I think that Philip, I, I think he really wanted to get away with it, but. In order to, you know, have it be acknowledged that they've done this great crime, they have to get caught. And I think whether Brendan consciously realizes it or not, he is kind of, you know, nudge, nudge the whole time. But hey, like, we, we killed the guy. We're so smart for doing this. Brandon's just low-key trolling the entire uh, dinner party and the whole time. Yeah. Me and my boyfriend, we just killed this guy. Yeah, one thing I stumbled across in my notes, uh, I mean, I, I stumbled across after I finished my notes, is that in 2013, there was an article in Scientific American that meticulously and elaborately broke down each of the takes in order to see if the real-time setting actually tracks. And this person's a super nerd, so he found issues. <laughs> yeah, the, the film's roughly 80 minutes long. He says that they cheat a little bit. The, the time actually probably encompasses at least 100 minutes. His main pieces of evidence would be like, there's a sunset at the end of the film. This is a big deal for Hitchcock. He actually reshot some of the last scenes because he didn't like the, how the sunset came across. But uh, the sunset's a lot faster than it does in, in real life, so that was sped up a little bit. Another thing about the actual dinner of the dinner party is that it only lasts about 20 minutes. You know, if you're if you're eating noodles on the couch while you're watching Netflix, 20 minutes is, is sensible, but for a dinner party, no, that's that's really speedy. Yeah, but you know what? You don't unless you don't really notice it, especially if this is you know your first time watching Rope. It's mostly focused on the immersion of it, which um, I have thoughts about that that I'll be discussing in the thematic bits and also 
while discussing other films that have used this one long take gimmick because Rope is the most famous example, but it's hardly the only. And there's a very famous recent example I'd like to talk about a little bit. Yeah, and there's also like Birdman. There's Birdman and there's one that's even more recent. Oh yeah, yep. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, getting back to the queer subtext. Oh yes. It is not overtly stated because this happened during the Hayes Code and you could not overtly have queer characters. However, there is definitely a lot of queer coding, especially amongst villains in Hollywood movies during this period and well afterwards. The Disney Renaissance is also rife with it. You know, more than a few people have argued that Brandon and Philip are lovers and it is very easy to read it, read into it that way. Uh, Rachel says that, you know, it would be harder to read into it not that way. Yeah, it's, like, fairly obvious. Like, remember watching, like, the first thing, like, the murder scene? I don't know. It's almost like they're making love, you know? They're, like, murdering the guy. There's an argument of strangulation as an act of love. A lot of criminal psychologists do that, and Brandon and Philip do it together, and then they light a cigarette afterwards, and then they pull the drapes because the neighbors can't see. (laughs) not an... Uh, not not a subtle uh, yeah, simile and there. there's a couple of lines about the bedroom. It's not Philip's bedroom or Brandon's bedroom. It's just the Brett and Philip went to college together. They've been out for a couple of years. They still live together. They're roommates, scare quotes. They do everything together. They spend the night. They go on vacation together. Yeah, and, and as I said earlier, both actors playing them were queer. Like, uh, fairly Granger, you know... I call him a, a bisexual icon because he, when he was 20, he was off in the Navy, and according to him, he lost his virginity twice in one night, once to a beautiful lady hostess, and then later on to a handsome naval officer. Yeah, so good for him. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that puts it right outside the realm of subtext. Yeah, it really does. However, if you think this is just our idle speculation, the screenwriter of the film... Uh, Arthur Lawrence once claimed that the film's box office disappointment was due to its homoeroticism. And I quote here, There wasn't a word of dialogue that said the lovers were lovers or homosexual, but there wasn't a scene between them where it wasn't clearly implied. Yeah, and they're very touchy-feely, too. There's a lot of mouth-to-mouth close-ups where they're breathing into each other's mouths. And once again, this film was very carefully put together, so all of that was on purpose. Yeah. Once again, you know, um, you know, queer coding in Golden Age Hollywood films and, once again, the Disney Renaissance. It establishes a link between queerness and sociopaths, basically depicting homosexuals as the other. It's like, of course, these people are sociopathic perverts. They're gay. And Hitchcock uses this in a number of his other films. The antagonist of Strangers on a Train is this floating dandyish fairy man. Yeah, and, and Fairly Granger is also in that one, too. <laughs> And in North by Northwest, it's a little less obvious, but uh, David Warner has said that he played his henchman character as as a lover of the um, older villain. I don't know. I think that it comes across as, I don't know, it comes across as more genuine. Maybe it's because the actors are were really queer versus, like, I don't know, some of like the stylistic choices that you will see in, like, Disney movies where it's very, like, enforced, like... Haha, ha, this villain is clearly queer. It, it's not just for Brendan and Philip. If you watch it, it's like they're in a relationship. It doesn't quite seem quite as, I don't know, I'm describing this the right way. It doesn't quite seem as like a decoration. 
Uh, yeah, uh, some of it is just to uh, establish a dichotomy. I mean, if the if, if the protagonist of the film is a typical movie protagonist, uh, you know, he's bold, he's confident, he's handsome, he's barrel-chested, then how do you differentiate the bad guy? Well, the, the bad guy will be less masculine. He'll, he'll be more urbane. He'll be more foppish. He'll massage a cane as if it's a penis. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that, that, that comes into characters that are arguably not queer-coded, such as, say, Norman Bates, who is played by a queer man, and he is at least heterosexual in the contents of the film, although he's, you know, a transvestite. And he's not gay, but he is sexually perverted. And in, like, late 1950s, early 1960s mainstream views, that's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's... uh. Let's move on to other themes in the film. Uh, once again, uh, let's talk about the difference between suspense thrillers and horror, as uh, Rachel implied earlier. Oh, yeah. Horror is when you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, suspense, which is what Hitchcock usually does, is when you know exactly what's going to happen. You know more than the characters do, and you're just sort of waiting for the sort of Damocles to finally drop. And that is rope in one sentence. Yeah. And, yeah, the, the entire single-take experiment is just to underline that tension, because the, the camera never leaves, it never cuts, yeah, it never cuts, obviously, except in one instance, and you're, you're not allowed to get a breath. Yeah, you're just stuck there, staring at, you know, the body in the box. I mean, and once they put David in the box, you don't see his, his remains again. No, not, not even when Jimmy Stewart looks in at yeah, the end. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, like... And what I've said, what's in the box? You know, it, it is better to have your own imagination fill it, fill it in. Yeah, one other aspect of the film that I wanted to talk about in a thematic way is just undercurrents of class warfare. Mm-hmm. As um, another thing that is often brought up in Hollywood films is just uh, poking fun and punching up at the elites, which is you know Hollywood is one of them, but they like to pretend that that they're not because they're trying to market the film to um, you know the, the rural community. So yeah, here are these really foppish New Englanders from money who have never had to work a real job in their life, and they're just so decadent and lazy that they decide to kill somebody because they're bored to prove their superiority they're better than you yeah, so look at us we can get away with it until you know brendan's giant ego gets away with it i think that they, they could have you know maybe not forever but i think they could have gotten away with it if it wasn't for his giant ego The dialogue keeps going into the aspects of superiority and inferiority. They decide that they are better than David and that they can kill him for their little thought experiment and it won't make a difference because David doesn't matter. And Rupert, who, you know, refutes his previous assertions that sort of supported that theory, goes into it because the United States is a place that really, really, really likes to act like it's a democratic institution and that we don't have strictly defined social castes like in Europe. And yeah, we do, but we, we would like to put on airs. Yeah, and you know, like Rupert's the one that, you know, taught them that this philosophy and also it, it's kind of a bit of a throwaway line, but it does state that he is a veteran of World War II. So I mean, it doesn't say where he's fought, unless it, unless it does, but you know, he could have fought the Nazis who, you know, it took his original thought experiment and, you know, pretty much took it to the most horrifying result possible. 
Yeah, I mean, we could get into uh, how uh, Hitler willfully misinterpreted the philosophy of Nietzsche. I mean, I disagree with both Nazi ideology and uh, Nietzschean nihilism, but for different reasons, because they're not the same thing. <laughs> that might be a, too much of a, a side tangent. Yeah, uh, I read a lot of contemporary reviews of this film, and Time mentioned the, the class warfare thing when they were talking about the callow brilliance of the characters, and what they labeled as lavender dandyism, which, if that isn't a queer coding phrase... They're gay! <laughs> yeah, this isn't something that us modern millennials have decided to project onto the film. Uh, people were clocking it in 1948. Yeah, like, no, 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 it, like, it, it drips in every frame. Like, it, it's not subtle at all. Yeah, getting back to the whole auteur theory thing, I, I wanted to talk about how uh, scene blocking uh, being used as the primary driver of film storytelling, which that is the case in most of Hitchcock's films, but especially in Rope. The, the camera is the principal storyteller, less so than the actors. Just getting into uh, auteur theory, it, a lot of people have cited it as some kind of unassailable mantra, but it is fairly controversial. Uh, for something like film, where it is almost impossible for it to be not a collaborative effort unless it's a very specific circumstance, it is a little silly to attach the entirety of uh, of the artistic genius of a film to one person. I agree. And I also, it is also frequently argued that auteur theory elevates filmmakers who are very distinct and very obvious, and you can spot them after watching like 30 seconds of the film, as opposed to, you know, more anonymous directors who are no less talented. I mean, according to auteur theory, Michael Bay is a brilliant filmmaker. And some people have argued that he is. He has two films in the Criterion Collection. But yeah. Yes, good for him. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you can spot Michael Bay from a mile away. You know, the rampant product placement, the orange gasoline explosions, the helicopters at sunset, the billowing flag, the filling every single frame of scene with chaotic nonsense that you can't fix uh, your eyes upon. All of it very distinct. Yeah, I agree. And I won't really go into it, but I'm working on another review uh, where I will go into a tour theory and how very sometimes a tour theory is an excuse for a director to be an asshole to get results for the sake of his, because it's, you know, most often his, his genius. Yeah, see, also method acting. That is another criticism that auteur theory occasionally gets, is that it's inherently misogynistic, because if you're going to put the director in front of everybody else, it's almost always a dude. Yeah. And if you look at the list of, like, greatest directors of all time, they're usually, like, sometimes there's a token woman on the list. It's usually a white male sausage dick. Yeah, and... <laughs> You know, w women have been an aspect of film from the from the very beginning. Uh, as directors, Lois Weber is a pretty big pioneer, but a lot of it is done in the editing room, and a lot of great female editors have been shortchanged. I mean, there's there's a reason that Star Wars fell off after George Lucas got divorced, and you know, Scorsese's been relying on the same editor since since his Taxi Driver days, a little before that. Oh, and I, I can't believe I forgot George Miller's wife's name. She's the one that edited. Um... Um, Fury Road, and her background is in, like, editing documentaries together, so that's why it has such a unique feel to the camera work. Uh, so, yeah, it's not just the director who matters. I think the director themselves would be the first person to tell you that. The cinematographer matters. The actors obviously matter. That's the first impression you get out of any film. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tapestry, and everyone has their hand in it, but I, th I think the reason that people are just so eager to stamp a single face onto any, any artistic work of, of merit is just uh, some weird quirk in the human condition. We, we want to boil it down to one person. We want to boil it down to one genius, to, to, to single out one, one, one great man to tell our history. It makes it easier, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose it's, it's it's part of that. Yeah, getting back to the film, uh, it got mixed reviews. Most people build it as an interesting experiment that didn't work out. That was Jimmy Stewart's take. This was limited by the technology of its time. Yeah, uh, there was also some criticism about how the continual movement distracts people more often than it immerses them, which I sympathize with. Uh, Rope was probably the first film of its kind to get mainstream distribution so it might have felt like this really really weird blast of cold ice water just hitting you in the face because if you look at a lot of films prior to rope there's there are a lot of camera tricks lots of lots of cuts lots of uh, lot, lots of motions and it, one aspect of rope that is definitive is its stillness which is what contributes primarily to the tension mm -hmm. and uh, yeah I, I do sympathize with that i think a lot of these single take things are recent film school grads just waving their big dick around asking you to notice their direction which can pull you out of a film just as much as it pulls you in i think that if you do like a long just one like one long take for you know like a fight scene or a certain scene it can be really cool you know this is an, an, an achievement like uh, the ending of henry v the hallway fight an old boy yeah, the hallway fight in the raid <laughs> yeah the uh the opening shot in um Orson Welles' Touch of Evil is usually cited as one of those. Uh, the nightclub entry scene in Goodfellas uh, tends to get brought up an awful lot. Recent, like, one-take wonders. Uh, you mentioned Birdman, uh, 1917. I found the, the one-take gimmick thing to, to be something that pulled me out of the film. I, I found it to be a bit of a distraction. I don't know. For me, when I watched 1917, I didn't, I didn't actually notice it after a while. Yeah, I, I suppose it's just, it, it probably says more about me than it does about the film, but I, I, I couldn't stop paying attention to it. Well, how did, how did the one take for that, for 1917 versus Birdman? I thought it was more obvious in Birdman that you're watching what's supposed to be one continuous take. Yeah, and that's the thing with Birdman. I uh, I, I was able to get lost in it. I, I don't know if Birdman's a great film, but I, I liked it, and I didn't find the direction to be something that was distracting. Maybe it's different because Birdman follows way more characters. In 1917, it's just the two guys, and then you're just following the one guy. I, I think the marketing is also part of it because I didn't read a single review or a single think piece or a single interview that didn't mention the one-take thing, whereas with Birdman, that wasn't the case. Yeah, mostly we're talking about how it was like a comeback for Michael Keaton. It, with Rope, I knew about the one-take thing because that, that that's the first thing anyone brings up when they're talking about Rope. But it's just because Hitchcock's such a craftsman, I was able to look past that and look at the film as its own thing. We were able to talk about two or three other things besides the, uh, the film besides <laughs> its, besides its uh, one-take bit. Yeah, now I... For me, and I haven't seen, you know, all of Hitchcock's movies, but I've seen, you know, the big ones. Uh, Rope's one of my favorites. I like it. I like the claustrophobia. I like, you know, Dahl and Granger as the leads. You know, I think it's really creepy when you, you know, you take away all of the intellectualism the characters are parroting. I understand by what I said earlier. If this took place now, they would be 
Mass shooters. Mass shooters with Pepe memes. Although Pepe's like four years ago. That's a that's Methuselah in internet time. I know, right? Radically ancient. Yeah, Hitchcock would use the long take approach in his follow up uh, under Capricorn, and he would use aspects of it in stage fright. However, years and years later, when he was doing a series of interviews with uh, Francois Truffaut, uh, he described rope as, and I'm quoting here, a stunt. I really don't know how I came to indulge in it. I got this crazy idea. I realized it was quite nonsensical. So, <laughs> yeah, he was looking back at his old high school poetry and cringing a bit. I mean, we all do that. You're creative in any way. Truffaut, on the other hand, he being the big French New Wave process nerd, auteur theory critic that he was, he loved rope, and he thought that uh, Hitchcock was protesting too much. Yeah, and I, I think that the whole thing, it is a bottle episode. It doesn't go anywhere else. And, you know, even if he had filmed it to be, you know, to look like one continuous take, it still would have had that claustrophobia. But I think having it be, you know, seen seem to be one continuous take, it really, like, makes it even more claustrophobic. I, yeah, I, I've talked about a lot of dumb action movies with, with big, expensive-looking set pieces where everything blows up. But a, a lot of my favorite films are just a bunch of people trapped in a room, and then they just have to be human at each other for a long time. And uh, Rope is definitely one of those. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it is... It, it does feel like a film stage play, even though I know it, it is a stage play. Because they don't, they don't, I, think, I feel that they do it at least, do they ever do it at least once where they turn the camera so it's like, you know, breaking the fourth wall? Or not really. I'm trying to remember. Uh, not that I noticed. Uh, yeah, the, the, the camera feels like it's in the room with the people and following them around. I don't think it's one of those, as I put it in previous episodes, parking a tripod in front of a stage play and walking away. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I believe the camera's a character in the film just as much as any of the actors. Yeah, it's a witness to, you know, the absolute horrifying thing that is happening in front of them. Yeah, the whole reason that the camera's moving around so much is that it makes you feel like you're in the room with them. It forces you to become a voyeur, and that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, I just blew through all my notes. Uh, is there uh, anything you wanted to tack on to this that we haven't gotten around to yet? Where was Hitchcock's cameo in this? Oh, uh, he was very briefly uh, illuminated in the neon sign. I actually looked that up in case it came up. I, I, I Googled it, and then I saw a frame with a little circle. and be like, there he is. Yeah, I just wanted to double check, because the first time I watched it, it was you know, like, it, it's hard to find him in such a, you know, limited area. <laughs> yeah, there's also a, a flash of him in a uh, weight loss ad that was also used in in Lifeboat. So, Lifeboat and Rove both take place in the same cinematic universe. Ooh, how exciting. Marvel, they look out now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Like I said, I like because of, you know, just the layers of what it is. And, you know, even if it was a gimmick, I think it's a good one. You have to be the first person to try something. All right. Well, if that's it, uh, I will bid everyone listening to this a good night. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Bye.